Jewish views on shul membership. As a JPR report shows a decline in numbers, we ask what does synagogue attendance mean to a Jew in 2017? The Dream Doctors Project, hear how an Israeli organization are using clowns to help pediatric patients. And we meet Miles Isaacs, who donated some of his bar for money to help Hatzola purchase life-saving equipment. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. More than 10,000 people have signed a petition calling on the Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, to ban Hezbollah. The campaign, launched by Christians United for Israel UK, gathered momentum after the controversial Al-Houds Day march in June. Currently, Britain outlaws the military wing of Hezbollah, but not its political wing. Sadiq Khan, the London mayor, is also backing a complete ban of the group. Almost a 100 firefighters tackled a blaze at a Jewish school in Hackney, East London. Fifteen fire engines were sent to the building on Craven Walk, where crews faced hazardous conditions after flames caused the ground floor of the four-storey school to collapse into the basement. The cause of the fire isn't yet known. A new report on synagogue membership in Britain, the first since 2010, has revealed that numbers are declining generally, except for those who are strictly orthodox, and that's up by 139%. The survey by the Institute for Jewish Policy Research also shows there are 454 synagogues across the UK, the highest number in recorded history. The former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert has been released early from a 27-month prison sentence. He was convicted in 2014 on charges of obstructing justice and accepting bribes to promote a Jerusalem property project. The charges related to a time when he was mayor of Jerusalem and trade minister before he became premier in 2006. And finally, it's been announced that the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge will take their children with them on their five-day tour of Poland and Germany. In Poland, they'll visit the former Stutthof concentration camp and meet survivors of the Holocaust. In the German capital, Berlin, they'll visit the city's Holocaust Museum and Memorial. That's the news this week. Mark is here with the sport. Thanks, Viv. The 20th Maccabeer Games are underway in Israel, with Team GB's delegation of over 300 athletes set to take part in more than 30 different sports. Dubbed the Jewish Olympic Games and described by organisers as the third largest sporting event in the world, this year's event will attract a record 10,000 athletes, with GB looking to better their 24 medal wins from four years ago. Closer to home, Israeli Dudi Seller made a winning start at this year's Wimbledon's Championships after beating Spain's Marcel Granolas in five sets. However, his reward was a tough-looking second-round clash against American big hitter John Eisner, who's ranked 21 in the world. And finally... Omri Caspi has joined NBA champions Golden State, the sixth team for the 29-year-old who became the first Israeli to play in the league eight years ago. His move has seen him take a pay cut from the $3 million he was earning over the past two years. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports and progress of Team GB at the Maccabeer Games at jewishnews.co.uk. 
Mark, thank you very much indeed. And welcome along to this episode of The Jewish Views, sponsored by Little Big Leaders. I'm Phil Dave, and joining me straight away in the studio to go through your copy of The Jewish News for this week, as we always start the programme like that, is editor Richard Ferrer and features editor Fran Wolfish. Welcome to you both. Now, looking at the front page, we can see that the headline very clearly reads, Modern Orthodox Shul Membership Lowest in Decades. This is a new report out by the JPR, isn't it, Richard? Yeah, seismic changes afoot in the Jewish community and have been for a number of years. The JPR and the Board of Deputies every so often, the last one was in 2010, issue this survey. It's basically a a synagogue census where they get a sense of how many synagogues there are, what denominations and affiliations people are members of. So the good news, if you call it good news, is there's more synagogues in Britain than ever before, nearly 450. Obviously a lot of those are, are smaller, unaffiliated back bedroom sort of organisations rather than your big mass membership ones. So more synagogues, but less members, particularly amongst the modern Orthodox. Not only the modern Orthodox, and by that you mean the United Synagogue, Mizrahi, S&P, also the progressives are down slightly less than the modern Orthodox, the liberal and reform movements. So that's one way our community is moving. The other way many, many times larger and more profoundly is the Haredi community, 139% shul membership up since 1990. The community in the decades to come will be a minority modern orthodox, a minority secular and a majority Haredi, a majority strictly orthodox. You know, I want to pick up though on what you just said, Rich, about if you can call it good news, that there are more synagogues than ever before. Fran, isn't it always the case that we've always been a religion though, of, dare I say, quality, not quantity? Does it matter how many shuls we have? Surely it's who's attending those shuls and how often they're attending those shuls. Well, yes, to an extent. And also, when I first read this report, it reminded me of that old Jewish joke. There could be two Jews left in the world, but there'll be three synagogues. The one that that neither will go to because they've fallen out with it. I think on a more serious note... What these statistics do tell us is that the the middle, the orthodox middle, which I myself fall into that category, is shrinking. So British Jewry, as we know it, will look very, very different in years to come. And is this a sign, perhaps, that we are polarising? We're either going to the right or we're going to the left. This kind of middle of the road Anglo Jewry that we've all grown up with and we're familiar with, will kind of cease to exist and what does that mean and I think also it's a trend that we've seen in Jewish schools as well the fact that more and more children are going to Jewish schools now which means that the kind of upbringing many of us had going to non-Jewish schools but affiliating you know quite nicely into the traditional Anglo-Jewish household is disappearing so I think the picture in years to come will look very very different. What really strikes me about this is that the Jewish community in the UK has been an absolute example to other minorities about how to integrate, how to assimilate, how to participate and improve in the culture that they are part of in my lifetime, going back into you know the century before last. That's what the Jewish communities did. They, they took part and they played their part. What we are looking at now is an isolationist 
Jewish future behind segregation and behind closed walls. We're looking at a Stanford Hill way of, of, of Jewish life rather than a Stanmore, Bushy and, and Finchley where I come way of Jewish life. And that for me, as a profoundly secular Jew, is quite a worrying thought. What's really interesting as well is that this polarisation that we talk of is actually happening on a much larger scale as well. You look at recent events such as the results from Britain's departure from the EU, it was something like 51-52% wants to leave, whereas 48%, 49% wants to remain. That polarisation is on a much larger scale than we can actually really put down to just being part of our community. And actually, what I think is interesting is historically, this is where we came from that in times gone past when we all lived in the shtetl you were either in or you were out there was no middle of the road it was only when we started moving out of you know our sort of european roots and came over to britain that we started having this unique anglo jury so to lose that i think we would be losing something yeah just to add and labor the point what does it mean for an organization like jw3 or hanukkah in the square or, or limud and all these things that are anglo jury personify these great brands that we're so proud of so that's these figures i think is something for these organizations to you know to look up and take note indeed all right well let's have a look at some of the other stories making the paper this week and also on the front page is one britney spears as she performs in tel aviv yep britney's back did she ever go away no well she, she went yeah. away for a while yeah. uh, changed her hairstyle but she's back performing now and she's performing in Tel Aviv to 55,000 screaming fans. And it's fabulous to see one of the world's biggest pop stars holding the stage and holding court in in Israel. She's one of a number of massive names, Guns N' Roses, Radiohead. I'll be going out to Tel Aviv the week after next to see them. So I'm very excited. I just thought I'd throw that in. Are you? I didn't know. Yes, I've been boring my colleagues crazy about that one. I was going to say, I'm guessing by Fran's reaction, you've yet to mention that to anyone (laughs) in the team. Yeah, well, now can... listeners know too. Anyway, that's not my point. My, my segue really is that these people, particularly Radiohead, are being targeted by the BDSs, the Boycott, Divestment and, and Sanctions Anti-Israel Brigade. And they're putting pressure on these people to boycott Israel and to pull out of these concerts. And it's just great to see such big names, huge celebrity stars who are shining a positive light on Israel and ignoring that dangerous pressure. Isn't it interesting, though, that the bottom line is that this is supposed to be a singing sensation performing in just one of a number of countries. And it's really, really pathetic how always it boils down to political issues with a certain minority who just want to, frankly, cause trouble. Well, let's face it, I'm sure there are big names who go to countries that have controversial things going on. But let's be frank here, politics and the arts just shouldn't come in the way of one another. This, you know, the fact that Britney Spears is performing in Israel is a wonderful cultural thing. Yes, it is cultural. And we we should celebrate that. We should celebrate the arts. We shouldn't be placing our own political opinions onto performers like that. I mean, 14,000 people have signed this petition against Radiohead performing and ruining my holiday the week after next. Um, How dare they? But it's transparent prejudice. I mean, any of these 14,000 people were dropped from the sky over the Middle East and just landed randomly in a country in the Middle East. They would blooming well hope they landed in Israel if they they wanted to go on social media or they're a woman who wanted to drive or they were homosexual or they believed in a free press and, and, and the list goes on. These people are willful fools who just need to go back in their box. 
Okay. Le- lecture over. Well, quite. There it goes. <laughs> Don't hold back, Spe- Richard. Spe- speaking of box, off your soapbox, please. And let's have a look at another story, which is 70 years of getting snappy happy. This is a remarkable individual who has spent no less than, is it right, 70 years taking photographs? Yes, Reginald Davis. During the war, he was drafted in as a fleet air arm photographer and learnt his craft as a photographer as a young boy, a young man, should I say. And when the war ended, he decided, well, he couldn't do anything else, actually. That's all he knew. So he went into photography, became a fleet street photographer. And over seven decades, pretty much followed the royal family around the world and other royal families and indeed celebrities. There was a lovely story that he heard about Jacqueline Kennedy who actually followed while she was on holiday in Acapulco with her two children and he was desperate to get a snap of them and the Mexican authorities told him under no circumstances could he actually take photos but he was determined he hired a small power boat off he went to try and catch them on their yacht the Mexican authorities came hot after him, rammed his boat, and actually what happened was he stayed afloat, but the waves caused the dinghy that Jacqueline Kennedy and her children were in to capsize. And so you got this fabulous picture of JFK's widow and her two children all in the water. Doesn't so. sound very fabulous for them, but anyway. All right, well, what page is that on if we want to read that? That's on page 28, and I'd also like to point out that there's a brilliant picture as well taken at Diana and Charles's wedding. Third row back, you can see Camilla Parker Bowles looking straight on. Goodness, there you go. So he even photographed potentially the future as well. One line, Rich, because we're flat out of time. Kosher food in prisons. What's this? Yes, there's a TV show on Netflix called Orange is the New Black and there's a very funny episode in which the inmates decide that they all want kosher food because obviously the slop that's served in prison isn't terribly appetising so they want to have a proper kosher label on it. So anyway, a lot of these prisoners apparently in Edinburgh, over 100, would you believe, have signed up for kosher food and obviously this is costing the local authorities an arm and a leg so they're looking into it. Kosher haggis, anyone? Wow, there's an image for you. And that's, I'm afraid, where we have to leave it for a look at the paper for this week. But thank you both very much indeed. As you've just been hearing, a new report by the JPR shows that Shaw membership has fallen since 2010. It also shows that there are more synagogues in the UK than ever before, as well as the Haredi community having grown by a considerable number as well. So what does this mean for Jews in 2017? To find out, I have been speaking to Rabbi Danny Rich, the head of liberal Judaism, and I started by asking Rabbi Rich whether or not he's surprised by the findings. Well, I'm not really surprised because the trend has been that there are less numbers of people affiliated in synagogues in general, and clearly the trend has been an increase in the number of Haredim or of ultra-Orthodox, whatever term you use, and that we've seen. And part of that, of course, is simply about the numbers of children. And I've no doubt, to give them their credit, they're attracting some people perhaps into their ranks. Now, there are some people who, in fact, already we've heard on this programme, we've heard the term polarisation already. It means, obviously, a sense of that the gap is getting wider between what one might describe as the more religious Jew and the more secular Jew. Do you think that this is a problem or do you think this is a natural progression? Well, first of all, I think it's a natural progression. Secondly, I'm not sure it's wholly accurate in the sense that I think that there clearly is a division between those who don't wish to affiliate the community at all in a religious sense 
and those who who do. And I think one has to try and find ways of bringing those two groups together and teaching each other the mutual value and respect of what it means to be Jewish in different ways. It is also true that the religious community, and by that, of course, I include liberal and reform and Masorti going all the way through, they're probably, what what we're seeing undoubtedly is a move to, or in percentage terms, certainly, a move to the ultra-Orthodox. And this should be a wake-up call for, I think, for religious Jews in general. I mean, it's clear that the largest figure, and I understand why, the largest drop is going to come in the United Synagogue. They were the largest before, therefore their drop is likely to be larger, that's inevitable. It equally applies to the group like Masorti, which is very small. If you start with three people and you claim a 300% increase, it doesn't mean you're doing very well. Do You know, you have to judge that in totality. But I do think it's a wake-up call for all of us, because as I, you know that I've expressed elsewhere... I believe it will not be in the interests of Britain or in the interest of the British Jewish community for our community to be overwhelmingly Haredi. And it's not because I object to people being Haredi. They must choose whether they're Haredi or not. In particular, let's look at sort of the what we might describe as the, the, the less religious of the religious Jews. So whether that be liberal reformers or yes. whatever it is. What I want to know is whether or not you believe that any of those groups could be doing more to attract people to sign up to shul memberships is there anything that they are dare i say doing wrong oh undoubtedly we're doing more the fact of the matter is if half the community is not affiliating and now you can see that our market share is remaining about the same in a diminishing community we must be doing something wrong so i'm not complacent we at liberal june will have to reflect on why our numbers are not increasing and that may be because the Jewish community over a whole is diminishing. So we, we, we could welcome this report and say, oh, look, our market share is about the same. Aren't we doing well? I'm not prepared to say that. What I'm prepared to say is we have to do better. But, and, and the we means not only we and the liberals, it means the reformers and, dare I say, mainstream Orthodox Judaism, unless we want to hand over the community to the Haredi community, who are who, whose numbers are clearly growing. Now, whether that's through encouraging our families to be larger... Uh, which would be one one philosophy, not one I would necessarily recommend. But what I do think it is, is if the community is not affiliating to liberal Judaism, then I have failed to persuade a large number of Jews that liberal Judaism is a valuable way of Jewish life. And I have to reflect on that and try and find ways to make sure that I do. The, 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 there's no doubt the market is harder. You know, people don't live near synagogues. You don't get two people affiliating very often. You get one. So, so the inevitability of the, of modernity brings challenges and opportunities. And so I'm prepared to say that here's an opportunity, that what we have, this for our movement and for others should be a wake-up call and say, there are large numbers of Jews who are leaving the community or at least leaving the religious community, let me put it that way, let me be clear about that. And what can our synagogues do, A, about promoting religious Judaism, and B, reflecting on how we can better serve, because we're here to serve the whole of the Jewish community, not only the religious part, how could we better serve those who currently don't feel comfortable with our, with our, our religious expressions? Rabbi Danny Rich, head of liberal Judaism in the UK, speaking to me there about a new report published by JPR about the decline in shul membership across Britain. For more information, including a link to the full report, then you can go to our website, Jewish Views. 
Uk. Well, now I'm joined by the person who wrote the article for the Jewish News this week and has probably read the report cover to cover, I dare say, Jenny Fraser. Perhaps we could start by maybe just saying whether or not that you think the community has anything to worry about in terms of the findings of this report. It's very interesting because it used to be that the difference between ourselves and the Americans is that they had a lower level of shul membership because they didn't have burial affiliation in the way that we do. For many years, it used to be the case that in order to get buried in Britain, you had to be a member of a shul or at least have produced some kind of shul membership in order to have a funeral here. Whereas in America, it was always separate. So the figures were very much lower. People didn't need to join a shul in order to get buried. It's very curious that there is no mention of burial board affiliation in this JPR report. And so I'm wondering whether the concern that people may have should be more to do with whether or not they want to observe the Jewish life cycle and not necessarily belong to a shul in the way we once did. One thing that didn't come out in the pay-per-view when we were speaking about this earlier on is that there seems to be, I believe anyway, a link between the way that we live our lives now in a much faster-paced society where suddenly every second counts And whereas in years gone by, maybe we weren't quite so fast-paced. Just for example, we didn't have emails, so therefore we had to post letters. We had to wait for the response to those letters. It wasn't instant. We live in a very instant world now. And even the way that we record this programme, you could argue that, because most of our equipment is portable. Do you think that lifestyle has got something to do with the decline in shore figures? Yes, I certainly do. And it's very poignant for me because only this week... As the report was being issued, I discovered that my own synagogue in Manchester, which was in its heyday home to a thousand people, is now up for sale because they cannot have enough people on Shabbatot or the Chagim to warrant that size of synagogues. I think certainly the days of the great cathedral synagogues are over and that's very much to do with the faster paced lifestyle that we're all running today. Jenny Fraser, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to The Jewish Views. This episode is sponsored by Little Big Leaders and brought to you in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Tony will be joined by journalist and author Emma Klein and education coordinator for West London Synagogue, Jane Goff. They'll be discussing what you've just been hearing about shul membership figures. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to Miles Isaac and his mother Melody, based on that he has very generously donated his bummits for money to Hatzola to help them purchase new equipment. But first, it's time to take a look at some of the very special work that the Dream Doctors do. It's an Israeli project that is working to integrate clowns into the healthcare system. As well as hospitals, they also work very closely with the IDF to try and help younger patients caught up in disasters or conflict. The team recently came over to the UK to try and fundraise and also introduce a similar system to our hospitals here. 
Now, there's no point in me explaining this to you. We've sent our very own Kate Fulton off to speak to a man in the know, David Barashi, a.k.a. Dush, the head clown. And Kate started by asking him to tell us exactly what is a medical clown. A medical clown is, first of all, a clown, an artist, a street performer that bring all this kind of tools inside hospital. This is what make him to be a medical clown. Because medical clowning is something that developed in Israel in 2002 by a group of very nice Jewish people that start to think that they want the medical clowning will be also in Israel hospitals. And they try to build the program, and they actually succeed, with artists, with professional artists that they call them and invite them to work inside a project that it's uh, artists and clowns that work in that hospital. So the medical clown is first of all a street performer and a performer with maybe with clowning experience possibly. And do they have to have medical experience? In the beginning, no. But later the project and the management of Dream Doctor understand very well that it will bring more tools to the suitcase of the clown inside hospital. Take us into a hospital room, in, you know, obviously an imaginary person. Would this person usually be a client? And what would be your objective when you go and see this person? The person is a, a client or in the hospital he is the patient. And uh, when he is supposed to go through a procedures, a medical procedures, I will be the person that invite him to the room. I will probably sometimes will go before him to the room to create a nice environment for him. I will start to play music inside. I will start to play with the material that I have around me to show him that this place is very nice place and environment is very welcome. Because normally you think of a hospital room as very sterile because it has to be sterile and very cold. So you you bring your little sort of magical air to make it welcoming. I bring my yes, my my magical air, my personality, my clowning personality inside. I'm buying all the rules of sterilization and you know I'm taking care about all the clean things that I'm not supposed to touch because I know what I can touch and what I'm not. Do you wear a sterilized red nose? I am cleaning my red nose in the beginning of the shift and I'm cleaning my hands all the time and also my staff that I work with them and the children touch them. We put a lot of meaning to all these sterilizing rules inside the hospital. It's one of the things that medical clown different than clowns on the street, for example. So the doctors, you, you work alongside them? Yes. In Dream Doctor Project, the first principle is that the clown and the doctors and the nurse is a one unit. It's a teamwork. Without teamwork, there is no medical clowning in hospital. There is just entertainment clowning. And you call this project Dream Doctors. You refer to, to Dream Doctors. How many are there of you? What is this project? The Dream Doctor project started in 2002 in Hadassah and Karim in Jerusalem. The management of Dream Doctor Foundation and the management of Hadassah decided of one year pilot in the pediatric, oncology, all daycare, all the children area in the hospital. After one year, the result 
shows that the staff really want that this project will bring more clown. Also the patient, also the parents. And now in 2017, this project named 30 hospitals all around Israel with 100 clown. That during the year, we visit more than 250,000 kids. And some of these kids are really sick. This isn't just about going to have a vaccination. This is oncology. Yes, some of, some of these kids, most of, most of the year inside the hospital. Most of the life also inside the hospital. I understand that it's not just in hospital work that Dream Doctors, you go with the IDF, is that right? Yes. With IDF, it started in 2010 during the earthquake in Haiti. IDF built a hospital field in Port-au-Prince. We go there and we start to work with there in the hospital as a medical clown. And then after a few years, another earthquake in Nepal. And after Nepal, IDF decided medical clowns have to be part of IDF field hospital. And this is the way to entertain the kids while they are getting on with some of the more ugly stuff. To entertain the kids and also to give a lot of support to the medical staff that work 24-7 to let them a little bit uh, ventilations and emotional moment for, because clown work with all the people around him. It must be very difficult for everybody in those sort of situations. It's uh, very difficult. As a clown and as a person, I can tell you that I rem- it's very, very difficult and very unique to be in a place like this. But we realize that clowning can actually create a very good memory from a trauma, a huge memory. Coming back to the UK, what have yeah. you been up to here? So we just finished five days of clowning, medical clowning program here, workshop, that I found a few English beautiful clown women here. One of them, she's uh, from Israel, but she lives here and she works here. And we are going to start a six months pilot in September in hospital here in London that I cannot say his name because I cannot understand the name of the hospital, but it's something that last year when I was here, we dream about it. And now we just make this dream to you know come true. So this is the program that we have here, but we come here also because we need to bring support to Dream Doctor project in Israel from UK and, and Hadassah UK actually take adopt the project in Hadassah, Israel. So this is also one reason that we are here. And if you have a dream yourself, where would you like to see this project going? Here in London. My dream here in London that the project will be independent project, that the clowns, that the artists in London will take this and will do it in the way that the English kids need to get a clown. Really fascinating work there. That was David Barashi, a.k.a. Dush, the head clown from the Dream Doctors Project in Israel, talking to Kate Fulton there. For more information, then you can go to our website, which is jewishviews.co.uk. In just a moment will be this week's schmooze. Make sure you tune in to our live stream on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm British Summertime. It's a great way for you to share some of your Jewish views with us as the discussions unfold. And speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. 
Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. And of course, all of those details can be found on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. But first, it's every bar or bat mitzvah's dream to think of all of that lovely money that they're going to get and how they're going to spend it. I think I wanted to purchase a Game Boy, you know, one of those handheld games consoles. Anyway, our next guest was far more selfless than that. Miles Isaacs decided that he was going to donate his money to Hatzola, the community medical emergency group, and in turn they managed to purchase £1,500 worth of life-saving equipment. Community editor Diana Toman has been speaking to Miles and his mum Melody to find out more about it. Diana started by asking Miles to tell us why he decided to do this in the first place. I've always been interested in hospital programs and interested in helping people and wanting to help people, giving that person the extra smile on their face which they need every day. What a nice thing to say. And tell me exactly how what happened. You had a b'mitzvah. You had it already, I Yeah, I had my b'mitzvah in And January. presumably you got shed loads of money from that, did you? I wouldn't like to say how much I got, but I had enough to donate. You had enough to donate, fine. And did you choose what you were going to donate? Yes, I did. Out of, what, a selection of machines, or how did you know what they had? They sent us a list of all of what they had to offer, to which people could donate. And the smallest, I think, was starting from a first aid kit, and then it went up to a defibrillator. And I thought that I wanted to do the defibrillator because I would know that me donating that would go to someone's life. Tell me a little bit more about a defibrillator. Supposing I didn't know what a defibrillator did. A defibrillator is a machine which, when someone goes into cardiac arrest, they use and they press it down on that patient's chest and they give them a shock and hopefully they'll come back to life. Have you been watching that on television? Yes, I have. I thought you might have been, <laughs> right. And you obviously felt that that was a good thing to donate to. Yeah. Was that all your permits for money, or did you have a little bit left for yourself? I had a little bit left for myself, but I didn't want to spend it. Now, Melody, I gather that this is somewhat of a family tradition, this business of donating to good causes. Isn't it your daughter, in fact, who's about to donate her bat mitts for money as well? Not quite yet, because her bat is not yet, but her brother, her oldest brother, he's donated to another charity after his bat mitzvah. And you must be very proud, then, of all your family. I am. I'm very, I am very proud. I want my children to always help others. I think it's very important that children are aware that they, they should help others. And is this just Jewish charities? No, they've helped non-Jewish. Mars uh, went to the Macmillan Trust. He went to the Macmillan Trust. He did right. a cake stand with his sisters and friends to raise money for them. My elder son's done for the gorillas, helped to look after them and supported them by raising money a number of years ago. And Miles, are you planning to do anything else, in fact, in future? Well, hopefully for my wedding, I'd like to donate a life-saving kit. That's very nice. 
in that. You ought to see your mother's expression. This is obviously something she had. No, that's <laughs> wonderful. I'm so pleased that Mars is already thinking about his wedding when he's only 13. Right. Well, good for you. You might have to consult your future wife about that, actually. <laughs> Right. Okay. So you're going to do. You're obviously a good person to think about donating in future. Is this anything to do with school? Not much. Just, but the school does do a lot of charity work. But I would like the school to try to get Hetzola in as one of their charities to donate to. Which school do you go to? I go to Emmanuel College. And I imagine that they already do quite a lot of charity work. They do do a lot. And has anyone else in your form donated their permits for money? Or are you the only one? I'm the only one. Are you really? Gosh. Does that make everybody else really look at you and think, my goodness, Miles is really something? There's or are they thinking you're a bit, bit, bit odd, perhaps? There was that one time where one girl in, our, in my year told me that she saw me in the newspaper and then everyone started running up to me why were you why do why were you doing this what happened <laughs> and then you're standing there answering all of these questions from all of these people well that's what it's like being a star you see once you're in the paper everybody wants to know you mm-hmm. it's been a great treat honestly it has to talk thank to you. both of you well done we're all very proud of your tuition news thank thanks you. for coming in and thank you for inviting me Oh, bravo. Miles Isaacs there and his mum, Melody, talking to community editor Diana Toman about why he decided to donate his bar mitzvah money to Hatzola, who in turn purchased life-saving equipment. To see some photos of Miles at Hatzola HQ, then you can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. OK, just ahead of our Jewish schmooze, it's time for a word from our sponsor. Suzanne Edwards is the director from Little Big Leaders and joins me in the studio now. Suzanne, welcome to the Jewish Views. First of all, I suppose we want to find out a little bit more about Little Big Leaders. Could you just give us an overview of what you guys do? Yeah, Little Big Leaders, we run a remarkable summer school, which is held at the London Academy, Rittmansworth School and also Bushy Academy. We help children from the age of three and a half up to five to improve their reading and their maths. And we also help the older age group to improve in their maths and their English. And in particular, this week, we want to look at some of the ways in which you teach the children who take part at your summer schools. And so we're going to focus on phonics and also writing as well. So how does phonics feature? Because to a layman like me who doesn't quite understand, what, what is phonics? Phonics is when you actually break down the sounds of the letters, then you blend them together to help children to read. A lot of times the children sometimes guess the sounds and that's when they make huge mistakes when they're learning to read. Lots of times the parents teach them the alphabet, like the sounds A, B, C, but we're actually teaching them the phonics sounds. So word like cat, sometimes children will say K-A-T. Then they get confused as to what the word is. But we're actually teaching them the sound, which is k, at, and then they blend those sounds together to make the word cat. And what sort of impact does, say, learning in a phonics way have, say, on writing? Because if you know that a letter is C or A or T, you know to write those letters. But when you're thinking k, at, does that 
impact on writing and how does that work? Yeah, in terms of the writing piece, we are also teaching our students to write and that's writing correctly. So it's not just a matter about writing, it's also a matter of being able to sound those letters out. So that teaches them how to spell and also to write correctly on a straight line. Because some kids, they love going up in terms of trying to write on the line or they go part way up, part way down and they miss actually writing on the line. So it's so fundamental in terms of a child being able to read and also being able to write. But the most important thing of all really is that writing piece because you can have children who may be three, three and a half years of age who could be fluent readers but not being able to write and that can really hold that child back I'm afraid. Suzanne, there are going to be people listening to this who want to know how their children can benefit from Little Big Leaders. Where do they go for more information? For more information, if you'd like to join us for the summer school, you can send us an email at info at littlebigleaders.com or you can contact us on 0203 637 6266, which is a 24-7 answering service by our professional tutors. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Moves, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. Joining Tony Honigberg and me today is journalist and author Emma Klein and education coordinator for West London Synagogue Jane Goff. The subject today is shul membership. Of course, we've been hearing about this throughout this show, and so we thought we'd ask... What does shul attendance mean to us as Jews in 2017? Jane, let's start with you. We know you're obviously very involved in West London Synagogue for work, but how important is shul membership to you and why? It's extremely important to me for a couple of reasons, really. One, because I consider it my Jewish family, because being a convert, I don't come from an area where I have Jewish friends. So in that sense, I've built my Jewish community around the shawl. Secondly, it is a place where I can see people and be in prayer together as a community, thinking about the projects that West London Synagogue have going and how we do that as a combined unit. It's about strength. It's about just being a family, I think, for me, more than I've experienced before. And if you read the articles about this particular subject this week, it's interesting to discover that the membership is going down and that less and less and less Jews who are orthodox or or reform Mm. or, or liberal are disappearing while the ultra-religious are growing and growing and Mm. growing. Mm. But the ultra-religious are growing not necessarily because of new members coming in. I think it's because they have large families. families, (laughs) So I I was reading earlier on that the average Haredi woman, I think, has five children, something like that. So if you've got the Haredi families having five children where the average other families have two children, then something's going to decline. But it, Or is it declining because 
People are actually moving away from religion. It's it, that's I think is the reason. Personally, I think because there used to be the Jewish middle of the road, which was full of. Jews who went to synagogue. No, no, it was the twice or three times a year people mm. the middle mm. of the road. Mm. Mm. The middle of the road, but some went, some went every week. Some, some, went, some I, went. I know from my, week. I know from my own experience you know, that I, I go to Lauderdale yeah, Road Synagogue, the Sephardi Synagogue, and I remember that on Shabbat when I was young, it was pretty full mm. on Shabbat. It's now two thirds empty. Mm. Mm. But is it that the that the attendance is down? rather than the membership, because we've got a big membership base, but not all of them attend. So is it something to do with people actually going to the shawl, but they're not interested in that bit of it, but they still want to keep their link by being members? So you're saying that they're, they're cultural Jews, but not religious yes. Jews? Yes. I've just been told that this was done, the survey on this was done per household rather than per shawl membership. Uh-huh. So, you know, does that count... Does, well, that makes that, it even more mm, of a problem, doesn't mm, it? Just, mm, yes. mm. Is it because too many Jews are intermarrying and leaving the religion? They well, that about was 50%, all. I mean, Jonathan Sachs in uh, 1992, you know, when he became chief rabbi, set up Jewish continuity. And, you know, he kept saying, we're losing Jews, we're losing Jews because of intermarriage. Mm. But so it's nothing kind of particularly new. I think we're also losing that that middle of the road ground, that, the central Jewish ground, because some people have become less religious. But I also know a lot of people that were United Synagogue members that have become more religious mm-hmm. and, and have moved on to something like Lubavitch or, uh-huh, or that uh-huh. sort of thing. But those people are on the whole, on the whole, are older people. Young no, no, they, no. Well, I'm talking about. I'm talking about children. You're talking about children. The, I mean, the, the older members of my age, but children of my children's age, not necessarily my children, but of their age, have become more religious, which well, is interesting. Yeah. Well, well, the synagogue where my husband goes when he's here, and I occasionally go, has quite a lot of young people. You know, they seem. I mean, it's in you know between Hampstead and West Hampstead, and. Probably is that a reform synagogue? Or no, no, no. It's an actually orthodox. it's an orthodox synagogue. It's actually a federation synagogue, which is theoretically more orthodox than United Synagogue, but it's, it's not huge, super orthodox. Certainly not Haredi. I don't mm. think these days actually the Fed is any more orthodox. Like I think it used like, to be yeah. at one time. Well, that was the thought. You're, you're probably, it's probably like mm. modern orthodox mm. as well. Yeah. 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 And does something happen to a child after they've had their battle bar mitzvah, where they've kind of gone to the to the ritual of becoming a man or a woman, and then they think, well, that's it? Well, that's I think problem, so. You know. how, how much onus do you think falls on the synagogues themselves to attract members to to come? I know and I go to Edgewood United, and and since we've had the current rabbi, which is about I, I don't know eight nine years now. The membership actually has increased because mm, people mm-hmm. like him, mm, whereas maybe mm. before they weren't too keen on the Who previous. It's interesting you say that. It's David Lister, Rabbi oh, Lister. Thought, yes, it's interesting you say that actually, Tony, because my synagogue, which is Lauderdale Road in in Maida Vale, the Sephardi synagogue, has now has had for three years this amazing. Excellent rabbi. And he's appeared on this program on on Schmooze, yeah. who is absolutely he's amazing. I heard and him my talk. Yeah. two granddaughters, 
who come twice a year <laughs> with their mother, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Mm-hmm. But they, a, a little girl of 10, was absolutely captivated by his sermon. Mm-hmm. So perhaps we need more rabbis like, Dweck, that. Yes. like Rabbi Dweck. I think, yes. Yeah, I do think there is the personality of the rabbi, however much that's right or wrong, can attract or detract. Well, I think it makes they, a lot of difference. I'm going yeah. back to my own shul now, the Edgewood United, before the current rabbi, before Rabbi Lister came, they didn't have a cheder. Mm, right. The cheder had joined with Stanmore United Synagogue because there weren't enough young children. He came in and he started the cheder up and there's loads of young mm. families and young children mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. So he's boosted the membership from that. And I, I think that's down to, down to the rabbi. Right. Yeah, but... The, we're talking about two rabbis in the whole country, of course. No, 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 come on. There's Jonathan Wittenberg at New oh, York, yes, London, yes, yes, a yes, superb yes. rabbi yeah, I think and there a are flourishing of, congregation. Yeah. yeah, in fact, Rabbi Wittenberg is going to be doing the rabbinic thought this week as well. Oh, wow, so okay. much he, he is a truly amazing man. He's an amazing man. So there are three rabbis. <laughs> but unfortunately, there are many, 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 many more yeah. congregations, funnily enough, and synagogues in this country than they were a few years ago. That's right. Yeah. I think yeah. what, what Jane yet said... Yet the numbers are going down. Mm. I yeah, think what Jane said also, that the, the reform movement has vast numbers of families, but they don't all go to shul, do they? Mm-hmm. I, know, I know our producer, Phil, goes to Edgeware reform, mm-hmm. and they, they're just merging now with Hendon reform, right, and that right. is going to be the biggest reform synagogue that's in the true. country. Wow. But how that's many actually go on a Shabbat? I've just been told it may be the biggest in Europe. I'm sorry, I put them down. (laughs) And I do think it is what's on offer within within the services. I mean, we offer, for example, on, I think it's now twice a month, we do a Shabbat Shira after the official Shabbat service on a Friday, which is wonderful. It's musically led. They come off the beamer, so it's all just round. And you get lots of different ages there and people dance and sing and clap. And well, that's so, a great idea, but yeah. nonetheless, the fact, <laughs> the made, fact is it's still declining. Even though you're doing that, and even though the liberal synagogue is doing things which are more modern, mm-hmm. they are also finding that the numbers of people who go to synagogue are dropping. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the big, urgent problem. Could it, could it be? There's two things, actually. Firstly, could it be age-related? Because a lot of older people tend to go... Because mm-hmm. you've got time, I think. Yeah. You've got more time in your hands because you're not work, busy working. Mm. Maybe you go to synagogue mm. more often. But on the other side, can I ask the question at the beginning, what attracts you to going to synagogue? Mm-hmm. And you said community. Mm. It's your community. Mm. And I think that's what attracts me. To, mm. I mean, I go week in, week out. Right. Now, I've said this before on this programme and other programmes, do I go to pray? No. In, in fact, David Lister has once asked me, where do you go to pray? Because all I seem to do is see you talk. When you come to talk. <laughs> but then that's my community. That, that is the people yeah. around me are, are my yeah. friends. And yeah. You see, the Safari Synagogue is well known for the fact that, it, as, as the Reform Synagogue, I think it also, that the congregants do actually not talk. That's right, yeah. Yes, it's much more disciplined. I think a United Synagogue talking is shocking. Oh, it's it's dreadful. I I apologise now then in that case. (laughs) I I mean, I I, I don't think the the Shomri Hadat, which is this small federation synagogue, I don't think there's that much talking. Mm. An interesting thing I just thought of is that, you know, in 
Christianity, the churches are the same. I mean, it's the same not, there, yes. Yeah, but the Pentecostal side of it is just huge and, is it? and, and growing all the time. Right. So, Are they more fundamentalist, the Pentecostals? I know very little about them, to be <laughs> but honest. You see, but in they, a they're way, attracting. In a way, the Pentecostal can be related to the ultra orthodox. Haredes. And. That's, again, back to the same argument that we were having, mm. is that the, the middle of the road, Jew and Christian, are disappearing. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. I was yeah. going to say that about the churches. are also oh, losing people, sure. aren't they? Oh, sure. Hand over fist. The, the ultra-Orthodox, I don't know about with, with the churches, but I guess mm. the ultra-Orthodox are, are going uh, going to church, but mm. are they increasing in number like mm. the Haredi? Mm. Or is the whole religious aspect in the UK or maybe even worldwide really declining because people mm. are less religious. That's an mm. interesting point. Mm. Well, I was, I was talking to someone the other day who said, told me all sorts of interesting things about the fact that when he's now in his 50s, but when he was a little boy, his grandfather used to talk to him about the end of the world. His right. grandfather was Jewish, born Jewish, and then became a born-again Christian. <laughs> and he believed that the the end of the world would begin with the war in Babylon, in Babylon. followed by the re-engagement of the two Germanies. This is before there were two Germanies. And then he said the next thing after that would be a war in Syria. Right. And then there would come the false messiah <laughs> who may well appear in the United States. <laughs> now, he said he used to laugh at My that when he was a little boy. And now he's a man in his 50s. He begins to wonder because of the way the world is going. Uh, well, he thinks says. Trump is the false messiah. Well, I didn't say that. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I didn't say that. But it is an interesting argument. Isn't it, yeah. And it points to the fact that religion as such is disappearing. Mm. Mm-hmm. And is it something to do with the notion of God, you know, in a sense that it's quite old-fashioned to think of God or to believe in God because a majority, I'm not, not Jewish people necessarily, but if a majority of people still think that the God we're referring to is an old man in the sky that is benevolent to a very few and yet very, very horrible to the majority, mm-hmm. you know, and whether that whole idea of God, because of the horror that's gone on in the world, just doesn't stand up. And that I think we that's we spend point. so much time looking outside of ourselves for something to fix us inside. And I think that the notion of God just is unacceptable. The other side of it is, does this being we call God actually exist outside us or is this being that we call God actually part of what's in us? We are all, I believe, and it's only my belief, but I believe we are all part of God and my grandfather who was a a very tolerant rabbi Mm -hmm. and who has the greatest, had the greatest influence on my life always said that God gave us free will Uh but he was beyond man's understanding Mm. because he was so omnipotent and we can't even begin to imagine really? what God is mm. like right. but that clearly he is there mm. and yeah. I think we are all taking part in a movie in uh-huh. which we have free will <laughs> but one day we will discover what it's all about yes mm. that's, wow that's what I think 
I don't often. I think that's very philosophical. I still think that that it's it's necessary, as personal belief, that one should attend a service as regularly as possible. Yeah. Anyway, then we have to leave it because time time is up, but it's been an interesting discussion. Yeah. My thanks to our guest journalist and author Emma Klein and education coordinator for West London Synagogue, Jane Goff. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us and you can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. And time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. This time, as I said earlier, it comes from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London Masorti Synagogue. About 10 days ago now, I was asked to join a gathering of faith leaders and to speak at the foot of Grenfell Tower. I wandered around the area. I saw the many signs and pictures of missing people and the heartfelt longing that there would be help in locating and finding them. When different faith leaders, Christian, Muslim, Sikh, Hindu, local people, and also Jewish, when we spoke, there was a real feeling of openness of heart, of hands outstretched, that the faith communities had, would, and intended in the future to work closely together. And this has been my sense of the response when I went to Potter's Fields after the London Bridge attack and when I went to Trafalgar Square after the Westminster attack. And there was a great sense of solidarity of everybody for the sake of the citizens of the whole of London, a question which Sadiq Khan addressed so beautifully and so eloquently. In this week's Sidra, it takes me therefore to the verse in which Moses talks about the leader who is going to succeed him upon his death and requests of God, Yifkod Hashem, may God visit or find God of the spirits of all flesh, may God find a leader for the community. And Rashi comments on the phrase, Haruchot Lechol Basar, God of the spirits of all flesh, and says, God, you know that every person is different. Everyone has a different mind, a different attitude, a different opinion. Find a leader who will be open to hearing and listening to them all. It seems to me that this is where we are in the life of our country, in the life of our cities, that we need a leadership who will hear the different voices of different parts of our community, rich, poor, settled, migrant, asylum seeker, long-standing here in this country, Jewish, Muslim, Christian, of no faith at all, and that there is an opportunity now to draw our communities together and that opportunity is also a responsibility to do our utmost, to have open hearts, hold out our hands, build bridges and work for the common good of the whole of our society. Interesting. Listening to Rabbi Wittenberg just then really makes you recognise just how much faith plays a part in very dark times. If you look at something like Grenfell, one of the many positives that came out of it, apart from that sense of community, is also the sense of togetherness from different communities. And it is nice to know that something positive has come out of it. So thank you very much indeed to Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London Mazorti Synagogue with our Thought for the Week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Rabbi Danny Rich of Liberal Judaism, reacting to the JPR report on shul membership, Jenny Fraser giving us her take on it, David Barashi from the Dream Doctors Project, to my 
Miles and Melody Isaacs on donating money to Hatsala. Thanks also to our other contributors and, of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers Tony Honickberg, Sue Greenberg and Harley Baptiste. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by going to our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find the option to listen to all previous episodes as well. This episode of The Jewish Views was sponsored by Little Big Leaders, and it is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.